podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to your World Cup Daily. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Glad it didn't go to extra time in the end. Yeah, it was um, it was an enthralling second game. But let's start with the first game of the day. Uh, Netherlands 3, USA 1. Memphis Depay scores after 10 minutes. That goal, to me, Tyler Adams just didn't switch on defensively early in the game. And he got drawn to the ball and lost track of where Memphis was. Memphis arrives on the edge of the box and finishes with, uh, you know, a bit of the, the normal gusto we expect from him. On 45 minutes just before half time, it's another simple ball across the box by Denzel Dumfries. And Serginho Dest is fast asleep, allows Daly Blind to come in from left wing back, and he strikes home. It's 2 0. Hadji Wright got the US back into the game with what can only really be described as a fluke. I don't think there's any intention for him to do what it was he did, cutting home Pulisic's ball. Uh, but then Dumfries made it 3-1 on 81 minutes. Again, it's really, really poor defending. Anthony Robinson decides he's playing centre-back, moves infield, starts wrestling with one of the Dutch forwards. Leaves Dumfries in acres of space. Ball is switched across to him and he finishes to wrap the game up. I thought the Dutch were quite pedestrian. The US looked like a tired team to me. and I thought they let themselves down with poor defensive lapses. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think all three of the goals were pretty much the same in that, uh, as you described Tyler Adams there at the beginning, it was... Not concentrating, not switching on, not making sure that your man is your man and kind of just passing on people to others and and assuming it will be taken care of. Um, I thought USA were pretty poor, to be honest, in the first half, especially maybe came to life a little bit more. But first half, the passing was so safe. It was so bland. There were no runners and no movement ahead. Everybody kept going back to the centre backs because that's where Netherlands were pushing them back. Uh, It was all very, very easy for the Dutch to defend. I think Van Gaal was um, particularly quietly scathing of Greg Berhalter and the, and the USA coaching approach, to be perfectly honest, after the match. Um, it was it was too easy. That's the that's the you know the, the brutal truth of it. It mm. was you know I thought Greg Berhalter had a, a bit of cheek to be honest, saying that they were all over Netherlands at the time of the first goal, considering there was like seven minutes on the clock. Um, it was fairly ridiculous to suggest that it was against the run of play because of that. Um, it was easy. That's that's all I can really say. It was a, a tactical plan, which the other team did nothing to avoid. 
and that's really the story of the match. Yeah, I fully agree with that. I, like I said, the US team just looked leggy. Like they put in a lot of work to get through the group stage, and in even in those group stage games, Carl, they looked like they were getting tired around the hour mark in each of the games. Uh, Berhalter, we've talked about him a couple of times. It's very clear he's not a very good manager. And, you know, to bring Ferreira in, who hasn't started a game to this point in the World Cup, just bring him in and throw him into the team, was a bizarre decision. Why not play someone like Hadji Wright, who'd already started a game? Why not go with a Gio Reyna? Like, what's the fear of putting Tim Weah through the middle? Um, Why not start Aronson? He's just been stuck with the same rotation of players over and over and over again. And there's a lot of players in that US squad that have come to this World Cup and just kicked their heels. And I noticed in his uh, post-match interview, Walker Zimmerman made comment of the players that had not kicked a ball. And that was quite unusual to me. And he talked about the great spirit in the squad and, you know, how much he'd, he'd take from seeing the support from those players. But he emphasised a couple of times that didn't see the field. And that, to me, seemed like maybe a bit of a dig at the manager, like you could have used more of the squad. I think the US, it's a young squad. That midfield is very promising. I think if you swap McKenney, uh, McKenney out for Aronson, I think you can change the dynamic of that midfield and make yourself more creative and adventurous. We both love what Gio Reyna could become if he can stay fit. So if it's him and Pulisic as the wide options, that's going to be really exciting. The fullbacks are what they are, but they've got decent young ones coming through. The questions for them, are any of their goalkeepers actually any good? I I couldn't tell you. And can they produce decent centre-backs in time for the next World Cup? They've got a couple of promising young ones. Can they develop them? But obviously the biggest question will remain, can they find someone to score goals? Can Pepe develop? Can they convince Fowler and Balogun to come across? Do you think the US in four years could be a bit more of a force? Yeah, they can and they should be. I think that they're in the position of quite a few other nations that we've mentioned at this World Cup, to be honest. Um, Ghana being you know, an obvious one. Canada as well, we've spoken about. They have real potential. They've got to bring the next generation along who have already started here, but also find a few more key pieces along the way. And I think for the USA, most importantly, is that they find the right coach to oversee that regeneration and progression. It's no good them, you know, just blindly plodding along with Bahalta for two years who maybe will use the same group and maybe will improve them a little bit and improve himself, but is not really of the maximum level, let's say, to really take advantage of the quality that they have, that they obviously have. Uh, and I think it would be a shame if if he was allowed to maybe not you know necessarily be sacked straight away, but if you're not going to give the the World Cup coach let's say at least two years of preparation, mm. I think it's going to be a missed opportunity. I really do. Um, so maybe maybe getting through to the knockouts was enough for him not to outright lose his job, but there has to be real progression in the next twelve months, let's say, uh, of playing style, of finding who you want to be your reference point of attack maybe of integrating a couple of key players who, like you say, haven't really featured enough. I don't think Brendan Aronson's played anywhere near enough. No. He's been really, really good in the Premier League this season. Uh, is a player who could have brought a lot of energy and a lot of mobility to that team. I mean, they went to more or less 4-2-3-1 in the latter stages of the game. Why did we not see it before? 
at any point. Like, yeah. Um, the midfield, you mentioned the rotations that he was using, like a, a very narrow pool of players, basically. But the midfield didn't change at all. And all the emphasis is on them, both defensively and offensively. But that was really poor management, I thought. Like, I thought Tim Weah had an okay World Cup, but nothing more than that. And I'm really not sure how he's a nailed-on starter over someone like Aronson. Because Aronson is, like you said, he's playing really well week in, week out in the Premier League. Tim Way has been a complete flop at Lyon. He's got eight goals in 81 games. He was a flop with Celtic. Tim Way has been living off potential and promise since about 2018. And he's shown nothing in the last four years to warrant being a definite starter. Now, I think he's got talent, but he's not of the level of the French League. He needs to go and play in Belgium or the Netherlands or somewhere for a few years and try and develop that way, where he can be one of the best players and maybe that that suits him more. But, you know, like a player like him keeping out someone like Aronson or an, an exceptional talent like Gio Reyna, who I know there's injury issues with, but he might just be the most talented player you've got full stop. And yet he's getting seven minutes here, 10 minutes there. Like that's not, that's not enough. Uh, moving on then to the second game. And we learn that the Netherlands will face Argentina in the quarterfinals. Argentina 2-1 win, winners over uh, Australia. Leo Messi scores on 35 minutes. Julian Alvarez makes it two on 57 minutes after a bit of a howler by Matt Ryan. Then, Carl, when Argentina had looked so comfortable to that point, they made a raft of substitutions. The Aussies made some substitutions, and the game shifted completely. Australia got back into it with uh, what was credited as an own goal to Enzo Fernandez, but it's a shot on goal that hits, hits Fernandez and loops across to the other side. And while they did threaten to go 3-1 up on the counter-attack a couple of times and Latour Martinez missed a couple of sitters, the Argentines did start to wobble at the back and they looked quite vulnerable. <laughs> yeah, I think we saw here the um, two things, actually. The, one, the emotional side of this Argentina team in that they do well in adversity to a point, but then also seem to almost embrace it and welcome it and think that they have to really... I'm not really sure what, let's say, like they have to be throwing their bodies on the line instead of just managing the situation a bit better. Like for about the last, well, from 2-1 basically out of nothing, it was all of a sudden like everybody has to be flying into every single challenge to make a block and all this. There was no need for it. Just win the ball back once, be in shape, force Australia to break you down instead of like actively creating gaps by flying into every challenge. Sit in your shape, wait until you got the ball, and then go back to what you were doing in the first half. Pass it and don't let them get it. Mm. I don't understand this quite crazy uh, need to be like last ditch about everything that they have. Even even the finishing, like Lautaro Martinez has had an absolutely shocking World Cup. There's no two ways about yeah. it. And this was just a you know a continuation of bad uh, confidence and a bad moment for him. Fine, but it kind of stretched to other people as well in like some of the last passes, some of the the build up play, some of the fact that you know the wing backs who had come on by that point were still trying to like 
beat the man and get across into the near post. Just turn back and keep the ball. It's five minutes left in a World Cup knockout match. There was no need for it at all. And then um, Karen Gould almost obviously got an equaliser there. It was only really the two Martinez's, Emmy and Lisandro, made a really good block on mm. uh, Behic, who transformed just for, for one minute into Messi himself. Um, really weird dynamic to this game, but I do think that a lot of this, aside from the Argentinian mentality, is um, the fact that basically we don't really know how good they are yet. They haven't really come up against a very, very tough match yet which is an odd no. thing to say considering they've already lost, but they haven't had a really tough match yet. No, I mean, Poland are average, Mexico are average, Saudi Arabia are average, and Australia are average. Just credit Saudi to the Arabia. Aussies. Yeah, Saudi Arabia are those four teams, the team who attack the most, and they, yeah. they are not that good at attacking, basically. No, no, they're not. And they're also the team that was the most aggressive with their defensive setup. They didn't invite Messi to dribble 25 yards into their half they just stepped up onto the halfway line and caught them offside and caught the rest of them offside time and time again I will give the Aussies credit like I thought they really did throw the kitchen sink for the last 15 minutes um, and and the stoppage time obviously so it was good to see they didn't let their heads drop when they went 2-0 down you're right about this Argentina team they're just a very strange collective of players you know if you were putting together a team. I, I just, I don't know that Julian Alvarez on one side, Papu Gomez on the other would be how you'd flank Leo Messi. Um, I, I really like the midfield three that started, DePaul, Fernandez, and McAllister. I'd like maybe a bit more ball winning in there, but they keep the ball unbelievably well. Like they're very, very patient, very, very smart. Since he's come into this team, Enzo Fernandez has made them massively better. The same goes for Alexis. Like Those two lads have made a huge difference to the mindset of this team in terms of just taking care of the football. It was largely when McAllister got taken off that they started to get a little bit ropey because Palacios came on and he just looked... Uh, like he couldn't quite catch up to the pace of the game. He was playing really advanced as well. He had two shots on the edge of the, the Australian box. He's a holding midfielder. Why is he that far forward? It's going to be a big, a bigger test, obviously, next time out against the Dutch. But it, even at that, like the Dutch aren't a team that are going to scare Argentina. If you were Argentinian right now, would you be confident of a place in the semi-final? If I was Argentinian, I'd probably be assuming that I've already won the final. So, well, that's uh, a fair that's point. Kinda, that's kind of what they are—the fans as well as the team, isn't it? You know, they're they're here for one thing only, and either it will be the greatest occasion of their lives, or it will be utter despair and desolation. And that's how they approach the football. Um, and I'm on board with that. Yeah, yeah. Why not? That's why we're moving to Uruguay, right? After that's all. exactly it. Win, win, or just don't bother. Simple as that. Um, there was. The moment we've been waiting for where Otamendi would Otamendi and it almost happened today. He left just not quite enough on a back pass. (laughs) And if not for uh, Emmy Martinez getting very quickly out of his line, he would have been in bother. Look, we expected them to win. Yeah, this is uh, Nicholas Otamendi of the assist. Let's let's, uh, remember to mention. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, look, to, to be fair, when the Aussies got really desperate and threw Harry Suter up front and just started launching goals into the box, I did think Otamendi and Romero did really well to repel everything in the air. And Lissandro, or, yeah, Lissandro Martinez then was kind of just sweeping up in behind them and, like you highlighted, made that outstanding block. I mean, that's that's going in otherwise. Eddie Martinez's late save is probably the save of the tournament so far. But you know what I found interesting? So the ball breaks to Karen Gould, future Newcastle player, and he swivels on it and shoots. Now he's, what, eight, nine yards out? You would want him to swivel on it and shoot. The Aussie player who's coming in from the right-hand side is screaming at him to pass the ball. Like, why did he ever think he was going to get the ball in that situation? No Ford player is going to, with three yards of space, not swivel and take that shot. Judging by the um, Australian shots which came beforehand in the game, you wouldn't want them to either. No. Including the goal, which was probably landing back in Melbourne. (laughs) It depends on which way the stadium is is, is, uh, angled. It may have been heading our direction otherwise, but yeah, it it definitely wasn't going in. That's for absolute certainty. Right, so we get Netherlands versus Argentina in the quarterfinals. That game will take place on Friday, the 9th of December at 7 p.m. It'll be the later game that day which means that the early game that day, the 3 p.m. kickoff, will be held between the teams playing tomorrow. So the first game tomorrow is France versus Poland. Obviously, France came through their group. They did lose their last game, but they'd already qualified and had rotated basically everybody. Poland weren't very impressive, let's be honest. It struggled against Mexico Probably should have won the game because they missed the penalty. They beat uh, Saudi Arabia, but they could very easily have been a couple of goals behind before they really got going in that game. And then Argentina beat them. Uh, They came through on the base of Mexico having conceded one goal less. Am I right in thinking that? Just conceded one goal more. Is that why Mexico went out? Because they conceded three and Poland conceded two. I think I'm right in saying that's what it is. Um, What do you make of France versus Poland? Because I don't see anything other than a French win. I don't. And I'll be honest, this is out of the round of 16 games, the one I am comfortably looking forward to least. Um, Poland went through a goal difference in the end, didn't they? Because there was um, a 2-1 in the end for Mexico. They won instead of Yes, because Mexico were chasing (laughs) trying to get the third goal because they would have gone out on yellow cards otherwise. Yeah, yeah. So um, Poland have been dismal. I, I really dislike the way that Poland set up and play uh, under this coach. They have much, much more talented players than they actually utilise. Uh, it's a World Cup knockout game, so lots of things could happen, like you know, a shock early goal or one or two players choke or whatever it is. But would you really expect that from France or the French squad? I wouldn't. Uh, would you really expect Poland to do anything other than sit back to start the match? I don't. So... Honestly, this is definitely the game, the the tie that I'm looking forward to least. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it was the most predictable of them all as well. And so, therefore, I'm going to predict exactly what we would expect to be predicted at this stage. 
Yeah, I mean, look at even look at the, like the ones that were played today, and then what's what comes afterwards. You're right; it is the least appealing of the eight games. It is the one that appears least likely to spring a surprise. I mean, I, there's a world in which I can see Switzerland beating Portugal. As unlikely as it sounds, I can see South Korea causing Brazil quite a few problems. Morocco, Spain, I think, is close to a toss-up. I think Japan, Croatia is quite a toss-up, especially considering Japan wants you to have all of the ball and then they're going to murder you on counterattacks. Um, I, I'd be interested to see, can they get into single-digit possession for this game and manage to win it? Um, England, Senegal, I mean, that's a toss-up as well. England will be favourites, but, you know, Senegal will be dangerous. But I mean, you could easily have seen Argentina losing today, having lost to, to Saudi Arabia, and the same with USA. But this one, I just don't see how Poland win. No, and I mean, even if even if there is like a, a favourite in any of the rounds, that's that's fine. Like you you expect it at different times, but either the matchups you can see that there's something tactical which is quite interesting to watch, or you're particularly interested in a couple of players and how they're gonna. Uh, tie up or face up against you know the biggest rivals of the other team or anything like that. But honestly, this this is just Poland's low block trying to stop France and killing Mbappe scoring a goal. That's what mm. I expect this to be for large stretches of the game. Obviously, there will be some periods I assume where uh, whoever it is, Zielinski or Zimanski or someone like that is going to try and get up alongside Lewandowski. But I mean, he's been so isolated all the way through the group stage. Can, I don't expect that to change against France of all teams and. Quite honestly, if France score an early goal, that could be the best thing for this match. Uh, if they breach that, because the line, poles have to open up. Yeah, they have to do something different at the very least. So, personally, that's what I'll be keeping my fingers crossed for. Um, maybe, maybe they come out with some surprise tactic or a change of shape or something like that, but I don't expect it. No, neither do I. I, I think the biggest question mark for France is who starts at centre back tomorrow. I think everything else just will fall into place. I think they're they're the better team. They've got the better players. They've got the best individual on the pitch. They've got the most in-form individual on the pitch. They've also got the most in-form centre-back, arguably, in the entire competition. He might not even start for them. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that we're both expecting uh, France win. We might as well just do the prediction now. You go first. I'm going to do what I want rather than what I hope or what I think. I'm going to go for 4-0 France and maybe it'll teach Poland a lesson to stop being so defensive. I was going to go for three and I'll I'll go for three because, yeah, I, I think the same kind of thing. I, I just, I don't enjoy watching teams that do what Poland are doing in, in a World Cup. And to know, like, the, the Poles' plan for tomorrow is going to be, let's try and get this to extra time. And if we can nick a win, we'll nick a win, but we'll back ourselves to beat them on penalties because they might not be the strongest mentally, but we we believe in ourselves. That's their game plan for tomorrow. And I'd quite like to see them get their, their bottom smacked. So, yeah, 3-0 to France, and you've got 4-0. In the later game, to find out who will play France in the quarterfinal, it is England versus Senegal. Now, obviously, England topped their group. They destroyed Iran, struggled a bit against America, but got a point. And then they struggled in the first half against Wales, 
But, you know, Rashford scored, Foden scored, Rashford scored again. Danny Ward showed himself to be a, a true Englishman with his performance. And uh, England came through without a scratch, really. Senegal, maybe a little bit fortunate to come through the group, but stepped up big when it was needed. Koulibaly came up big when his country needed him. Got them the win against Ecuador, having beaten Qatar and lost to the Dutch. Carl, I think this could be a very good game, depending on what Southgate does. If he goes with the back four, if he goes with the Rice-Bellingham double pivot with either Mount or Foden, Sterling, Saka and Kane, I could see it being quite an open, entertaining game. But I have this nagging thought in the back of my mind that Kyle Walker is starting, England are playing a back three, and that Calvin Phillips or Jordan Henderson is going to start in next to Declan Rice in what will be basically a back seven with three in attack. Uh, I do think one of Phillips or Henderson will start. I don't think Mason Mount has been good enough to play, basically. Um, not really been used in the best way, in my opinion, but also other attackers are just in better form and more confident mood at the minute. So not the end of the world. Like um, what the real thing about that is that it frees up Bellingham a little bit more to go forward, which I'm fully on board with. As long as, like you say, it isn't the back three. I think it'll be still a back four for this game personally. Uh, assuming England go through and France go through, then you would expect certainly a return to the back three at, against them. But I think for this one, just given how how many options he has for that front line. I think he'll stick with the 4-3-3 for now. Um, I think it would be a, a little bit of a negative signal if they went to a back three, just because of, like you say, that midfield. A back three isn't a defensive system inherently, but it's the way England play it. It's the yeah, it's, it's the Southgate yeah. back three is, is yeah, a very the, negative setup. Yeah, it's a it's it's you know very deep central midfield pivot which stays in front uh, behind the ball all the time. Mm. The front three kind of have to do their own thing, supported by the wing-backs, but they're not forwards like, you know, the old Dortmund ones would have been when it was Muni and Guerrero at the best, or Hakimi and Guerrero, say. Um, they're, they're very much full-backs who get forward in support sort of thing. So I, I think England will stay 4-3-3 for this one, at least to start with. Maybe later in the game, if they go ahead, want to try and shut it down, that kind of thing, then maybe I see the, the switch there. But looking at the Senegal side, I think where I've, seeing the biggest weaknesses from them would be at right back. I think Sabali has struggled a oh, little bit defensively. No, he's and, awful, Carly. He's, yeah. he, the guy can't kick a ball. He can't run. <laughs> I, I, I think he doesn't look like a footballer to me. I, I don't know that he's not the coach's son. Well, I don't know, but he has such a high starting position, I think is the real thing. And whoever starts left side for England, whether it's Sterling or Rashford, Foden maybe, they're just going to play so much higher that it's one either going to expose him every single time and he just stays high and go 2v1 against Koulibaly all the time or else force him all the way back which takes out a lot of the attack and shape that they've had the build-up play that they've had he doesn't really contribute a lot in the final third because like you say his, his, his one-touch passing or his combination plays they're not particularly good but he does hold that position out wide which means either Nja or Sa or whoever they've started on that side are able to play a lot more narrow a lot closer to Bulai Jar through the middle and it does give them a bit more of a presence up front. That's that's really how they overwhelmed um, 
Ecuadorian spells of the match, I would say. So leaving three up front is quite important, I think, and leaving three in midfield to try and overwhelm them because Senegal were basically 4-4-2 for a lot of that um, latter stage of the, 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 the group after that first game, really. Even when it was Idrissi Gay basically playing as a number 10, he wasn't dropping into midfield off the ball. He was staying up alongside the forward. Not very effectively, but that's the position that he was taking up. So I think staying at 4-3-3 is just a very sensible thing for England to do, both defensively and offensively, to be honest. Now, I think I'm right in saying Idrissi Gay is suspended for tomorrow's game. Mm-hmm. So that will that will require a bit of a a bit of a change for the Senegalese. Um, they obviously made some changes in that last game. Going obviously the injury to Czech Koyate was part of it, but they went with um, with Pape Gay and uh, Pate Cis in midfield, and I thought the two of them together were just a lot more dynamic than what we'd seen from Mendy and Koyate and Idrissi Gay when he was playing in that role. Um, so I'll be curious to see what he does. I, I wonder, could he potentially look to play Nampali's Mendy in that number 10 role? He's not particularly good in the ball, but for the same type of thing Idrissi Gay gives you, that, that ability to press high and try and win the ball back high up the pitch... Maybe he does that. Maybe he'll play Pape Gay in that number ten role and bring Mendy in, in the in the midfield role. But he, he's got options. I mean, in in uh, um, looked good the last day. Sar has grown into the tournament. Gia is is good up front. He's got Nicholas Jackson, who I think's very very good as an option off the bench. He's got Crependiate. He's got options to go with here. And there are players in that squad that can hurt England. And England England are are not the quickest when teams turn them round. So if one England player is out of position, there will be space for the Senegalese to really hurt England. And if it's say if it's Henderson and Rice as a double pivot, that's a very slow midfield in front of a slow pair of centre backs. And if there's any space left in between those two lines, that is somewhere Senegal could look to exploit a weakness in the England team. Yeah, I think transition play counterattacks, and if they can try and press high from time to time when England are trying to play out, that's definitely where Senegal are going to get in. And I think if they give uh, Krep and Jatta another chance, I think he's someone who can cause quite a lot of damage as well. Um, even if they play him right side, maybe with Ismail Sarr the other, maybe then you play Njai through the middle with Dia, or maybe they'll have to, like you say, play a bit more of a, a ball-winning option as that higher-up player. But if you have you know, groups of two and three of them who can just do, not every single time, not relentlessly press and high, but just at certain times, like if you know, Shaw and Maguire may be a little bit isolated or nobody's come short from midfield, if Declan Rice hasn't dropped in to, to take possession on the turn, that sort of thing, that, those are the options where Senegal really can turn it over against England. And like you say, you play one ball in behind with, let's say, Saar running diagonally. Nobody's catching him in the, in that England back line. Nobody at all. And it can be a little bit rash and reckless from at least three of that back five, if you include the goalkeeper. So there's there's going to be plenty of chances for Senegal during the game. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And uh, just to confirm, uh, Gay was booked against Netherlands and, and Ecuador, so he is definitely out yeah. of this game. Um, 
We've got a couple of minutes left. Let's focus on England. What are you expecting as a starting eleven? So Pickford will be in goal. We know who the centre-backs will be. It will be John Stones. It will be Harry Maguire. Luke Shaw at left-back. Declan Rice will be one of the holding midfielders. Harry Kane will start. Raheem Sterling will start. So by my count, that's seven players, which leaves right-back, the second midfield position, number 10 and right-wing open for debate. Now, I think Bakayo Saka's had quite a good World Cup, so I think he probably will start on the right wing. So who do you think is the 10? Do you, do you agree with Saka? And who do you think will be 10, the other holding, the other sitting midfielder and the right back? Is it Kyle Walker or does he go back to Trippier? What does he do in midfield? I noticed Trent doesn't even get a look in at this point. No, <laughs> um, no he, he got his uh, run out in the group stage and now he can kick his heels again. That's what it will be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Kieran Trippier to start. I wouldn't be surprised to see Kyle Walker come on at some point, regardless of score, just to build up more minutes and more match fitness, let's say. Um, because I do think that if England and France go through, it'll be Walker who starts against France, presumably right of a back three, but you know we'll get to that. But either way, I think Trippier to start, Walker to come on at some point. I think Henderson will start in this game as well. So Rice and Henderson and Bellingham as the third, whether that's as a eight with Henderson or more of a double pivot and Bellingham able to be more of a 10, which would be my preference. Um, not as a, as a, you know, a standing still roaming in the attacking line 10, but basically someone who can do what he wants, a box to box with the protection behind him that two are going to sit in. So maybe a three uh, out of possession and basically a, a double pivot sit and Bellingham does what he wants when England do have the ball. I don't know that it's absolutely nailed on Sterling starts. I think he will, personally, but there's definitely a lot of discussion in you know, a lot of the England media who are out there at the moment over whether it will be Rashford comes in for Sterling or Rashford mm. comes in for Saka. So I personally think that Sterling will start because it's Southgate and the whole you know loyalty and sticking by the team who've done so well for him and all the rest of it. So I'm with you. I think Sterling starts, but he might not. Kane will start. And then I think Rashford comes in for Saka, personally. Oh, interesting. If he does that, I think he's better off playing Raheem on the right rather than on the left. Because I, I, Rashford, to me, is much more effective off the left. The only thing I could see is that he he's very good at coming in on the back post. And if he can get some sort of you know cross-field connection with Luke Shaw who delivers a good ball from the left-back position over to the far side, then maybe that's beneficial. But likewise, Trippier's a good cross for the ball, so you could get him coming in from, from the left side either. Um, I, like, I, I think he'll start Sterling because, like you said, he, he's one of the, the made men in this England squad, for want of a better term. He's somebody that has performed in major tournaments for England. Now, I know he got slated after the last World Cup, but it wasn't like he was terrible. And it wasn't like he shit the bed the way Harry Kane shit the bed a couple of times. Um, he was England's best player by a country mile at the Euros. So I, I think Southgate will reward him for that, even though he's obviously not in particularly good form. But this form, if form goes out the window with Southgate, I mean, if it was based on form and, you know, how you're doing for your club side, it would be two different centre-backs. It would be a different left-back. Jordan Henderson wouldn't be in the squad. And Phil Foden would probably be the first name on the team sheet because he's been outrageously good for City. 
it's funny to think that we're talking about wide positions and the three names that you mentioned were Rashford, Sterling and Saka and not Phil Foden, who for me is probably the most talented player in the England squad. Maybe after Kane, but maybe above Kane. Yeah, no question. Um, nobody has the, the the talent, the on-the-ball talent that Foden has, but I don't think very many of them either have his you know, appreciation of space and his ability to pick up balls in dangerous areas. But I also do think that for this specific game, given how Senegal's fullbacks play, it's fair enough to not start Grealish. Uh, Grealish. Yes, it is fair enough to not start Grealish. So I was reading his name there. It's fair enough to not start Foden, uh, just because I think that Saka or Rashford and then Sterling are going to be much more direct running in behind the defence. And for their fullbacks, I think Jacobs has had a pretty good tournament since he came in mm. at, at left back, but he is a left back who stays at left back. He doesn't really tuck in as much so far on the, the couple of group games that he started. Um, it's very much a handover to Jallo. I think that the the runners in behind Kane are going to be quite important for England in this match. And Savali, we've already discussed on the other side of the pitch. So if Foden is much more there, come short, come deep, pick up possession, create things, one-twos, and then get behind. Then you're looking at maybe Rashford as the one who's just going to run straight in behind for the passes from deep, for a quick ball around the corner from Kane, something like that. I think for the start of this game, I, I definitely would be inclined to go with two of those kind of players instead. Go with pace and try and stretch them out. Um, you could always tell Phil Foden that it's actually James Milner in disguise and the game is at Anfield. And he might throw his mind back to last season when he absolutely tortured James Milner by just running in behind him all game long. But yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't think Phil Foden will start. I think if he is to start, it would likely mean Henderson wasn't starting and Bellingham was playing in central midfield and Foden was the, was the 10. But I don't see Southgate being brave enough to go with something like that because that would basically be playing five attacking players and five defensive players, and he's just not going to do that kind of thing. Um, right, prediction then. 2-1 to England. I'm going to go for an England win. I'm going to go 3-2 for England, and I'm going to say it happens after extra time. Because, Carl, this is game four of this World Cup, and Jordan Pickford has not yet Jordan Pickford. <laughs> Harry Maguire has not yet... Harry Maguire! And John Stones is always, always capable of an old Rick. So I just think one of England's triangle there. Rocksteady triangle. <laughs> I think one of them will cost England a goal at some point tomorrow. Yeah. Um, yes. And, and I, I can see, you see Senegal getting another goal from somewhere from their own creativity. But I think England will win. I think there's no question England is the better team. Um, if England had a you know a football manager that was in possession of a set of testicles, I think they'd wipe the floor with Senegal and they'd back them to go pretty cl close to toe-to-toe -to -toe with France. Um, but Southgate will be restrained because he's Gareth Southgate. Uh, so I'll go 3-2 after extra time. Right, what have you got for the good people to throw their eyes on? Uh, today, I did a lovely piece on Argentina, um, a little bit actually building on what I was just speaking about before in the podcast, that we're not really sure how good they are because they've not been massively, massively challenged. But then looking at a little bit of the changes Scal Scalari, Scaloni has made since the opening group stage game, 
the midfield ones that you've alluded to there earlier on, but also I think Julian Alvarez coming into the side has given them a bit of something extra that they very much needed and need more of it basically because I think Netherlands from a certainly from a tactical standpoint but also from a, a technical one they're going to give them by a million miles the biggest test that they've had in both halves of the pitch and like I said I'm not really sure quite how good this Argentina side are yet so more to come more to love I think that's very fair and that'll do us we will be back on Monday uh Carl will not be with us it will be myself and young Drinkle and then Carl would return for normal service on Tuesday. So we'll see you then. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.